welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. And I'm Martin Cook. And today is the third episode of our Century Series, where we cover ten films from each decade from 1920 to 2020. Hopefully everyone out there is being safe, smart, and avoiding the 20th century, 21st century's version of the Black Death. While there are no cures yet or vaccines for the coronavirus yet, there's one disease this podcast can cure, or at least alleviate the symptoms of, and that's cabin fever. While you're stuck inside, we're here to keep you company so you don't start having two-way conversations with inanimate objects or, God forbid, cannibalizing your family members for sustenance. You going stir-crazy yet, Martin? <laughs> Uh, no, no, not, not, not too bad, although I will take issue with uh, problems ha- having discussions with inanimate objects. I mean, that, that makes up uh, <laughs> some of the best conversations I have all day, so uh, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. No, no, not too bad. I, I mean, I think we just have to sort of get it in our heads that this is going to be something we're going to be living with for a little while. It's, uh, you know, it, we're now at the end of the third week of, of social distancing and what is really now the new normal, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, we, you know, we're a long ways away yet from even adequate testing and even longer away from a vaccine, both, of thing, both things of which are going to be absolutely necessary to ever get back to quote unquote normal life. So yeah, just settle in, watch some movies with us and enjoy the podcast. Yeah, uh, the listeners at home can't see this, but we're both growing pretty formidable quarantine beards. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, we're definitely in uh, we're definitely in pandemic mode. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is an important news bulletin from eight decades ago. For the second time in twenty years, the world is at war. The Great Depression is over, but the long-awaited sequel to the Great War rages across the globe. From Europe to Africa, from Asia to the Americas, millions of young men are sent off once again to fight and die for either freedom or fascism. Hitler shoots himself in the head like a punk-ass bitch, Mussolini's mutilated corpse is dragged through the streets of Milan, and Truman drops the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Boy, howdy, what a thrill. After the defeat of fascism, the free world turns a wary eye to a new threat, communism. Say now, what in the name of Sam Hill are we going to flap our gums about today, Martin? <laughs> Very well done. Well, we're going to take a look at 10 movies, as you noted, starting with World War II and uh, going all the way into the the end of the decade in the 40s when people were dealing with what comes next. So uh, the, the first couple of movies, the, for the first movie is The Grapes of Wrath, which is obviously still dealing with issues from the 30s, from the decade before that, 1940. Also from 1940, The Great Dictator, 1940s Fantasia. Also 1940, so a lot, of, a lot of studios were trying to cram in movies before the war started, I guess. Uh, the, the Philadelphia Story. 1941, Citizen Kane. 1942, Casablanca. 1944, Double Indemnity. And, why do I have trouble saying that word? Indemnity. <laughs> uh, also, uh, and on to 1948, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. 1949, The Third Man. And 1949, the Bicycle Thief, also known as Bicycle Thieves, actually probably right. more correctly known as Bicycle Thieves. I'll get mm-hmm. into that. Oh, I should maybe also mention then that what we're going to actually do is probably break this podcast down into two into two segments to make it a little easier to digest. And also so you'll be able to uh, space out your listening uh, a little between this one and the next one we're going to do in the 50s. So we're likely going to, for the viewers, or for the listeners, take a look at the first six and that'll be in the first podcast, and then in the second one, the other four and, and all the other fun segments that you've come to enjoy from 
Unsolicited Film Reviews podcast. So, Zach. We're starting off with The Grapes of Wrath in 1940. It was directed by John Ford, written by Nunnally Johnson, starring Henry Fonda, Jane Darwell, John Carradine, and Shirley Mills. Henry Fonda and John Carradine wound up becoming the patriarchs of two Hollywood dynasties. The Grapes of Wrath is based on the massively popular Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name by John Steinbeck. It was an insanely quick turnaround between the release of the novel and the release of its film adaptation. The book came out in 1939, and the movie came out in January of 1940. It was nominated for seven Academy Awards, winning two, one for Best Supporting Actress for Jane Darwell for her turn as Ma Jode, and one for John Ford for Best Director. It was ranked number 21 on the 1998 AFI 100 list and moved down two spots to 23 in the 2007 edition. It tells the story of the Jode family and their struggle in the heart of the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma during the height of the Great Depression. When the Joes lose their farm, they pack up the family in the beat-up jalopy and head out to California, the promised land, the land of milk and honey, only to find that there ain't no jobs there neither. Conservative critics of the time thought the film was communist propaganda, which is kind of weird considering both John Ford and producer Daryl F. Zanuck considered themselves conservative. Luckily for them, this was before the height of the Red Scare that would come to dominate Hollywood in the coming years. I'm sure we'll get to that in the 50s podcast. The film really shed a light on the struggle of the common folk during the Depression and the failure of the powers that be to do anything to help. This message is made extremely evident in the final monologues of both Tom Jode and Ma Jode. Here's a soundbite from each of them. First from Tom Jode. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when... They're hungry and they know supper's ready. And then a little bit from Ma Jode. Rich fellas come up and die and their kids ain't no good and they die out. But we keep a coming. We're the people that live. They can't wipe us out. They can't lick us. We'll go on forever, Pa, because we're the people. So, what'd you think, Martin? I thought it was particularly interesting that this is the first movie after all the movies we watched in the 70s, sorry, in the 70s, in the 30s, that um, were just so big and expansive. And this one felt almost quaint, almost like we're watching a play. Right. It uh, was really a very kind of small and contained story, very realistic, very down to earth. And um, I, I think that probably was almost a reaction to some of the stuff that we'd seen in the 30s and, mm. and the uh, over-the-top uh, escapism of a lot of the movies that we'd been watching. But I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's, it's depressing as hell at times. <laughs> but uh, just the, the acting and the, the yeah, the, the reality of it really, really hit me. Yeah, it was... Definitely uh, the time for this kind of movie because there were still still so many um, misconceptions about how the the middle American people were treated during the Great Depression. Um, a lot of people saw these poor people from the Dust Bowl as kind of refugees, and 
kind of a nuisance because they were all flooding to the coasts and um, Chicago and the, all the big cities in search of work. And they were treated like shit because there were no social programs. The New Deal hadn't come around yet. And uh, it was really uh, it was really eye opening for a lot of people at the time, which is why the novel was so successful. And so was the subsequent film adaptation. Yeah, and and a lot of the movie takes uh, involves them taking that route to California, and obviously mm-hmm. all the trials and tribulations along the way. And I've driven that Route 66 a few times. Not now, there's a much nicer highway, and <laughs> um, you know it it was pretty damn boring at times, even with comfortable seats in the in the vehicle and Spotify and and rest stops every every couple of miles and everything else that we enjoy. I can only imagine what it would have been for those people riding in the back of wagons and doing that whole trip with no money and and little in the way of them and the coast and except basically just more dust and and people jeering at them the entire way. It, it must have just been a really harsh existence. Yeah, I've done the Route 66 thing, I think, six times now from east to west and vice versa and yeah once you get past the uh the forests and swamplands of the east coast it is basically nothing but flat land from tennessee to um to colorado almost i mean you go down through um arkansas and texas and oklahoma and uh Arizona. And, yeah, yeah and New is, Mexico. And yeah. yeah, I mean, no offense to those places, but those are pretty damn boring drives for the most part. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of a untold quaint beauty to the whole thing, but if, I mean, you can only see so many windmills and cows before you're like, okay, on, yeah, onto, onto the mountains. <laughs> exactly. And, and it is kind of hard to imagine that even, you know, within the last century, there were so many people living in shanty towns like that. I mean, obviously, there's massive homelessness probably uh, problems now, and people living in tent cities and stuff. But this was a different kind of thing. This, these were people who had homes and had, and then just within a few years, they were driven out and all living in these just little shanty towns on the side of the road when they're off in search of something, anything to to be able to f- uh, feed and clothe their families. It's uh, it's hard to picture that in that that's that actually happened within the last century yeah i mean and you know there there were proud people i mean there there were people that you know generations of families they even say it i'm probably misquoting the movie but it was like uh you know my grandpappy was born here then you know all my kids were born here and some of us died here and you know that's like that's their little piece of land that they fought for i mean it was hard living in the frontier days and to be still standing in the 30s and then just have it all ripped away from you through no fault of your own, that it, it's really tragic. I, d- I did think it was interesting that at the beginning of the movie, it, the parts of it that almost went from anti-establishment to pro-establishment within the same movie. At, yeah. the, begin- at the beginning of the movie, <laughs> when Tom Joad first comes home, 
everybody keeps asking him, oh, so did you break out of prison? <laughs> and there almost seems, and when he keeps answering, you know, I got paroled, people are sort of let down. There almost seems to be more pride in people busting out of prison than actually yeah, getting paroled. Even the little, paroled. Kids, even the little yeah. kids are like, hey, I bet you busted out. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're so disappointed when yeah. he said, no, I was actually let out legally. <laughs> so there's kind of that anti-establishment thing. But then by the very end, when they've been taken advantage of by so many people, the the one uh, sort of little community that that they they find some measure of peace in is one that's government supported, and they're right. and so it's interesting how the movie. I don't know if that was an intended message, but uh, that that was an interesting switch I found. Yeah, it's almost like there's no true right answer. You know, there's no easy fix to something like that because it is out of everybody's hands. It was. Not only the Great Depression as far as the stock market goes, but it just happened to coincide with the largest drought that America had seen in 100 years. And all that crippled the agricultural industry, which means nobody could get food. And, yeah, it was just a a snowball effect. Yeah, and and again, back then, I mean, a massive percent of the population worked in the agricultural industry, not even close to uh, to what it is now. And so, yeah, that had a that had a huge impact, obviously. Yeah, and there was no infrastructure in place to replace that. There was no trucking industry as it is as there is today. I mean, we bitch and moan when we can't find toilet paper at Walmart, but imagine what these poor bastards had to go through. Yeah. So yeah, definitely, definitely an eye-opening movie, and uh, just really incredibly well made. Yeah, and just like All Quiet and the Western Front for World War One and Gone with the Wind for the Civil War, my education for the Great Depression and Dust Bowl consisted solely of this film <laughs> when it was shown to me in school while my social studies teacher basically just sat back and read Sports Illustrated. <laughs> Thanks again to the American public school system. <laughs> Two thumbs up. Wow, you had some great teachers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they didn't even make us read the book. They're just like, ah, oh, fuck it. <laughs> Throw this on. Yeah, uh, I thought in particular uh, Ma Jode was the heroine of the film. I know Tom Jode uh, was the quote-unquote main character, but Ma Jode was really the one that held the family together. I mean, he basically fucks off at the end to join unions and basically, you know, be a communist. But, I mean, considering his circumstances... I don't think we can malign him for that. No, I, you're right. I mean, her Majo's husband even admits at one point, oh, I'm pretty well useless at this point. It's all on yeah. you. And she did. She took it all on herself and, as you said, kept the family together. Yeah, we actually saw her in a bit part in Gone with the Wind a year earlier, so she had a little kind of a nice run. True. All right, well, let's move on to The Great Dictator. So now we're really dealing with war and uh, things that were happening over in Europe. The Great Dictator was a Charlie Chaplin movie that premiered October 15th, 1940. As usual with Chaplin movies, he wrote, produced, directed, starred in, wrote the score for the film, although in this one he also did have a co-director and co-composer. So lazy. Yeah, (laughs) slacking by the time he got to the 1940s. Now, we've taken a look at Chaplin in our podcast on the 20s when we viewed The Kid, and since that time, Chaplin's popularity grew consistently over the next two decades. And by the time of The Great Dictator, he was clearly one of the most famous people in the entire world. However, despite the success of his films in the intervening years, including films like The Gold Rush, The Circus, City Lights, and Modern Times, 
Chaplin still hadn't really made a true talkie and was starting to receive criticism about living in the past. In his most recent film, Modern Times, from 1936, he also had started to involve political issues in his films, which hadn't been universally well-received. And with this film, with The Great Dictator, he was about to go fully political. And while the movie was a huge success, the public began to be turned off and his star began to fade. A little bit more on that later. Um, now, there's a number of reasons why Chaplin decided to make a satire of Hitler and fascism with this movie. Although not Jewish himself, he was concerned about stories he had been hearing from Jewish friends in Europe throughout the 30s. And the Nazis, for their part, had already decided that they didn't like Chaplin for some reason. He was called out in, <laughs> in, in some of their literature as, a, as that disgusting Jewish acrobat. Again, not, <laughs> not, not Jewish. Uh, most obviously... It was impossible to dismiss the physical similarities between Chaplin and Hitler, something many political cartoonists at the time made use of liberally. Chaplin himself was also somewhat haunted by these similarities, not only their appearance, but also that they had been born five days apart and had both risen from poverty to, to become these incredibly influential people. He had seen the Nazi propaganda film Triumph for the Will and studied Hitler's mannerisms for this role. Now, Lots of people were unhappy with the idea of making this film uh, in the U.S., in the U.K. as well, because of appeasement being their, their official uh, mm. policy at the time, um, because of the Hayes Code, which banned um, criticism of, of other nations. And uh, luckily, because, again, Chaplin being Chaplin, he was basically able to self-finance and film almost the entire thing on his studio lot. So he was in the position to say, kind of, screw you guys, I'm going ahead and doing it anyway. Uh, the film was a huge success in places it wasn't banned, <laughs> but <laughs> obviously there were a lot of places that it was banned. Uh, it was finally released in France after liberation in 1945 and became one of the biggest movies of the year there. Chaplin did say later on, that had he known the extent of Nazi, Nazi atrocities, um, the, the death camps and, and so on, he might not have been able to make a film that so obviously made light of Nazism and Hitler. The story of The Great Dictator. All right. So The Great Dictator, it's basically a story of two men. One is a Jewish barber who wakes up from a coma after being injured in World War I, but just on the eve of another war. And the other is Doppelganger, who is the Hitler-esque anti-Semitic leader of the country, the barber doesn't understand what's going on when he wakes up, gets into trouble with the stormtroopers, but is saved by an officer who he had pre previously saved in the last war. And that officer then gets into trouble with his superiors, and eventually the two become part of the underground resistance to the di dictator, who is inevitably moving his country towards war. Impressions, Zach. I absolutely loved this movie. I'd never seen it before. But I, I hate to be a prisoner of the moment, but I think I'm going to rewatch it again at some point. And I think this might actually be one of my favorite movies of all time, honestly. Wow. Um, and as I was watching it, I was thinking of our conversation about Duck Soup last time. And I think this is the biting political satire that you were missing when we were talking about Duck Soup. It is. I'm wrong. Yep. Yeah. I thought it was... Uh, just a great story. Um, we've talked about Jojo Rabbit in the past and how it's good to make fun of ridiculously evil people because it diminishes their um, 
their hold over society. And this uh, Jojo Rabbit was definitely the spiritual successor to the great dictator. And I thought it was funny. I thought it was moving. It has everything that you could possibly want in a movie. Uh, I thought uh, I did think it was kind of funny that he styled himself in the credits as Charles Chaplin instead of Charlie. Give himself a little bit of class. Yeah, <laughs> trying to be trying to be a little more serious. <laughs> yeah, but I I truly adored this movie. Yeah, I thought uh, political political commentary and everything aside, which you're absolutely right. I, I, this was what I was looking for from Duck Soup, and I, I, I was incredibly impressed. I thought it was unbelievably funny. I was mm-hmm. laughing my ass off through most of this, from you know his German gibberish speech that he makes, where he just so perfectly mocked Hitler's mannerisms and speech patterns and everything. That was unbelievable to, to like all the sycophants around him who kept trying to gain his favor yeah. <laughs> with the, oh, we've invented this, and then that wouldn't work. We've invented this, this is going to end the war, and then that wouldn't work. To, you know, the the ide- ideology, uh, ideological flexibility of the Nazis or whatever right. they called them in the movie, where it's like, okay, we'll be nice to the Jews now for, for this week, and then... Uh, it was, yeah, it was just, it was incredibly funny. Um, the, uh, the speech at the end is, is something that it's fairly famous for. And Mm -hmm. it was basically, he turns and speaks directly to the camera in, in character as the Jewish barber who's pretending to be (laughs) the, the Nazi leader and basically makes this impassioned speech for, for peace and, and loving your fellow human and stuff like that. Here's a short clip of that. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. So that speech is obviously something that he wanted to get in there and probably being in charge of everything uh, re- regarding the production of the movie is the only way something like that happened. I mean, that wouldn't oh, that yeah. wouldn't have happened with a traditional studio movie. And obviously that's his message. It did get him a fair amount of criticism, even if people agreed with the message. What, what were your thoughts on that? And did, did it change your, your opinion of the movie? Did it seem hokey or what were your thoughts? No, I, no, absolutely not. It didn't seem hokey to me at all. Uh, I was actually really moved by it. Um, as you said, it's probably the most famous, no, definitely the most famous part of the movie. I'd never, like I said, I'd never seen it, but I've seen just short clips from that speech and I thought it was going to be hokey, but it was, I mean, cause it was just so sincere. I mean, you could see the chaplain was really trying to speak to the world because I mean, the U S hadn't even entered the war at this point. They're still a year off of, from entering the war. And, you know, meanwhile, Hitler's killing millions of people and so many people were ignorant of that. And for him to actually shed light on that situation in that time, it was, it was, it, I, I loved it. I thought it was really, really moving. Yeah, I really liked it as well. And I wonder, I was wondering why it would have garnered so much hate at the time. And I think part of it might have been, that might have been the, one of the first times that people broke the fourth wall in a movie. 
Right. And, and he yeah. didn't, I mean, he didn't really break the fourth wall, but because he's looking right at the camera, he kind of did in a way. And so maybe people, people just weren't expecting it and they were just there. Oh, Chaplin movie. Let's get some laughs. Um, and yeah. there certainly were a lot of laughs, but I, I'm guessing it, a lot of it was just because it was so unexpected from Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. And it wasn't like it was out of nowhere because it turned really heavy in the second half. The entire film did. Yeah. Uh, when we got an insight into the ghettos and, you know, it wasn't like, as you said, Chaplin didn't know the extent of how bad the ghettos were at the time, but they, they were still pretty bad. And at least it was a step in the right direction of saying, you know, we need to do something about this. And yeah, it wasn't so much of a comedy in the second half of the movie as it was in the first. And uh, he's, I saw um, little bits of the kid persona, that he leaned on every now and then with like the sped up camera and slapstick. Like he was, he was still being Charlie Chaplin, but he was trying to evolve as an artist and as a human being. And I really respect that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there is still some of the, some of the amazing physical humor from, right. from his early days. There's that one part where, uh, there's a knock at the door and he just jumps right into this trunk. I almost <laughs> fell off the couch laughing so hard at that. That was unbelievable. Not only funny, but for I don't know how old he was at that point for a man to have that kind of dexterity to do that stunt. I don't know how many takes they would have had to do with of that, but <laughs> that was incredible. Yeah, and the and the language being called bacterian. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, was hilarious. Yeah, again in contrast to Duck Soup, where they went away from a funny name for the opposing country. The amnesia, yeah. Having a country called bacteria is just is just funny. But yeah. yeah, so there was you know the old um, physical humor was there, but then some of the new stuff. It, Charlie Chaplin in a in a talkie. Some of the lines that came out of that movie were just hilarious. I think one of my favorites was when he was talking with one of his as the dictator talking with one of his advisors, and they're talking about strikes in the factories, and he says, "Well, how many workers are going on strike?" And the answer is, "Well, the the whole factory, three thousand. Have them all shot." I don't want any of my workers dissatisfied. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was so quick-witted. And I love um, when uh, <laughs> he's trying to do the, the Nazi salute, and they're both, like, kind of fucking up. <laughs> they're like, like, one goes high, one goes low, and then they just keep, like, throwing their arms in the air. It's, it's, it's hard to demonstrate over uh, radio. But it just, <laughs> yeah, some of the physical comedy was absolutely hilarious. Vintage Charlie Chaplin, but he also really evolved in this one, too. Yeah. And uh, I was really impressed with the opening sequence, too. It was almost like, uh, it was still comedic, but it was almost like Saving Private Ryan-esque. Yeah. Like, like th th there was some like major work done in that movie there. Yeah, no, he was he was clearly on the on the top of his game in this movie. Um, I will say one final note on Chaplin before we move on to the next movie because we'll likely not discuss him again in this century in the right. in this century series. Um, but he, I mean, he was just such a giant of early cinema. Um, as we talked about, his his overt political message, particularly in that final speech, didn't sit well with a lot of people. And over the next couple of years, he was also the focus of a number of high-profile personal scandals. And he also garnered the scrutiny of J. Edgar Hoover, who thought he was a communist. Yeah, so by 1952, he was, he was effectively driven out of the U.S., and he lived in Europe for the next two decades, uh, which was a pretty sad decline for such a, a key figure to the, to the history of, of film. 
Um, by the 70s, though, as films were starting to gain a new audience of people appreciative of, of the man, and he was actually invited to receive an honorary Oscar at the 1972 Academy Awards. He was hesitant about returning because of how he'd been treated so horribly back in the 50s, um, but he eventually decided to return to the U.S. for the first time in 20 years. And at the Oscars, when he finally went up to accept his honorary award, he received a 12-minute standing ovation, which uh, to date is the longest in Oscar history and probably something that will never be broken. So, and, and, and he died five years later in 77. So despite the fact that the end of his career um, was, was pretty sad, at least he had that, that moment of redemption where he could stand there and, and be recognized by all his, his Hollywood peers for a 12-minute ovation, which he obviously deserved. Yeah, well-deserved. So, on to Fantasia in 1940. It's the third Walt Disney animated motion picture after Snow White and Pinocchio. It has a dozen directors, so you can feel free to look them up on your own time. Fantasia consists of eight unrelated animated segments, each set to pieces of classical music conducted by Leopold Tchaikovsky. All but one musical piece is performed by the Philadelphia Orchestra, the one exception being the Mickey Mouse starring Sorcerer's Apprentice sequence, which was performed by Disney's in-house orchestra. Disney originally came up with the concept in an attempt to restore the popularity of Mickey Mouse, who had begun to fade in popularity at the time. As production costs began to skyrocket, Disney was forced to pivot and turn, to an, animated, turn an animated short into a full-length feature. In true Disney fashion, Fantasia was a huge risk and a massive undertaking, but again, in true Disney fashion, it paid off in the end. It was ranked number 58 on the initial AFI Top 100 list in 98, only to drop off the list completely in 2007. Deems Taylor, a music critic and composer himself, MCs the film by introducing each segment and providing context. These eight, these eight segments are... Toccata and Fusion D minor by Johann Sebastian Bach, with abstract animations reflecting the accompanying music. Number two is a medley from the Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky, with dancing Chinese mushrooms, fish, flowers, waterfalls, leaves, and fairies. The Sorcerer's Apprentice by Paul Dukosk, where Mickey Mouse fucks up a magic trick and is nearly drowned by anthropomorphic brooms. Number four is The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, accompanied by an animated history of the world up through the reign and subsequent extinction of the dinosaurs. Number five is Intermission. There's like a jazz sequence with a loose jam session. Number six is The Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven with animations dealing with classical Greek and Roman mythology. Number seven is Dance of the Hours by Amaker Poncielli with dancing hippos and alligators. And finally, number eight, a mashup of Night on Bald Mountain by Maris Mussorgsky and Ave Maria by Franz Schubert. Here, the massive devil Chernobog awakens at night and summons an army of demonic thralls and spirits to dance for his twisted pleasure. He is put back to sleep when the church bells ring in the morning and Ave Maria begins to play. What are your thoughts? 
You know, it, it had been a long time since I had seen the full thing, so I had actually completely forgotten about all the different segments. Mm. I mean, all probably most people remember is the Sorcerer's Apprentice, and obviously it's the it's the centerpiece of it. It was the the thing that everything built out from when Disney was coming up with the idea. But uh, yeah, I I I really enjoyed it. It's a, it was a totally different kind of experience. I mean, it's really much more of a concert film than anything else, mm-hmm. and that's also something that I hadn't really remembered since I probably first saw it when I was when I was a kid. So yeah, I I, I enjoyed it. Um, totally different kind of film. Uh, I thought there there were interesting little bits to it. I mean, in the in the second segment, the uh, the Nutcracker Suite part with the fairies, even though Peter Pan hadn't come out yet, it sure seems that they have a basic prototype for Tinkerbell in in the animation for that. And um, the, uh, I did notice some of the later segments, this really wasn't, and I guess it wasn't um, promoted as as such at the time either, but it really wasn't a a film for kids. Hmm. It's, you know, the the, the part with the dinosaurs with the T-Rex attacking the stegosaurus and, and everything, and then I don't know what the fuck was going on with the centaur orgy in that other part. <laughs> <laughs> but it really, it just, uh, and, the, and then the last segment, the the night on Bald Mountain, that also really wasn't for kids. I mean, it was, it was incredible though. I mean, the images were just so evocative and intense. I think that actually may have been my favorite segment of, of the whole thing. Yeah, uh, it's hard for me to, objectively talk about this movie because it is so deeply personal to me. I've probably seen this movie more than any other movie that I've ever seen. I mean, that that's going from when I was a little baby. I've probably seen this movie well over a hundred times. Uh, I wasn't able to watch it until Disney plus came out. Um, last November, was it whatever? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that it was really cool to be able to revisit my childhood again because even as like a toddler in my crib, I used to hear stories from my grandmother and my mom tell me how I used to put my socks on my hands and wave them in the air like I was conducting classical music. Oh, nice. So, <laughs> so I mean, this is my introduction to classical music. It's why I've been a fan of it ever since. And how, I, well, I might have been vague vaguely traumatized but how i can't believe i wasn't traumatized by the night on bald mountain scene which has always been one of my favorite sequences in film history and you know yeah throwing mickey mouse in there always gets the kids involved so yeah as you say it wasn't meant for kids but i absolutely have loved this movie since basically the day i was born yeah, I guess the the Mickey Mouse part was that was kind of a way his popularity had started to fade a little bit, I guess, for for the Disney company, and that was the first time that they they sort of redrew him a little bit and added mm-hmm. eyeballs to Mickey Mouse. Yeah. That was the first time that he actually had eyeballs, or not eyeballs, but sort of um, like cornea or whatever. Um, <laughs> they changed his eyes. It wasn't just these blank bulbs like in in the old in the old Mickey Mouse cartoons. Mm-hmm. So yeah, obviously that 
helped to revive Mickey as this iconic figure as well. So pretty, pretty important there. I have a question then, since you've seen this a million times. There's that little segment where they're talking to the orchestra. And by the way, there just aren't enough guys named Deems these days. But, <laughs> but there's that segment where there's all the chimes and they sort of fall down and, and whatever. And they're awkwardly trying to pick that up. Yeah. Was that a bit or was that by accident? I couldn't quite figure it out because it wasn't it wasn't really funny enough to be a bit, but it seemed so awkward that I, I couldn't quite figure if that was meant to be there or if that was an accident. Yeah, there are differing accounts, but Walt Disney's take is that it was by accident, but he just decided to leave it in because he laughed so hard at it. So Okay, if, if it's by accident, then it is pretty damn funny. Because <laughs> yeah. the whole the whole rest of the orchestra is just kind of sitting there looking at these guys fumble with these chimes. Yeah, because I think if it was a scripted bit, it would have been way more like slapstick. Like you would have seen arms flailing and, you know, multiple instruments tumbling over like dominoes or something like That's that. That's kind but of yeah. what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he just he just thought it was funny, so he left it in. <laughs> But yeah, this is a uh, just such a technical marvel. Um, they even invented a new way of creating sound called Fantasound, and that's how they melded the uh, the animation with the with the music. And I mean, leave it to Disney to do something like this, even when uh, you know war is about to break out throughout the world. But uh, it wasn't a success initially, just because there was no European distribution because of the war. And it started out as a road show, but uh, of course, after its subsequent re-releases in the 50s and 60s, and then once uh, home video came to be, it m- made its money back like almost a hundredfold. Yeah, I also heard that because of the scarcity of materials during World War II, that the the equipment needed for this Fantasound thing, it was just hard for them to make enough of them. So there yeah. just weren't enough theaters that could actually even show it, and so it just couldn't uh, make any money that way. I, I found it interesting that you know this was one of your first introductions to classical music, and I imagine it's probably responsible for some of the massive popularity of a few of these pieces in the late 20th century, you know, like mm. the, the Rite of Spring and Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony and, and pieces like that that were you know, and to this day remain sort of big standards of, of classical music. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if this movie helped popularize a lot of those in the general public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like I said, you know, deeply personal to me. Uh, uh, I was almost brought to tears by the Ave Maria sequence at the very end because that was my grandmother's favorite song. It was played at her funeral, so shout out to Mammy. Wow, yeah. So it, it's it's had a really, um, it's had a huge effect on my life. And <laughs> even, okay, yeah, and culturally too, because even if you go to the Walt Disney Animation Studios in Burbank now, there is a big sorcerer's cap as the centerpiece of the, uh, you know, kind of entranceway. And that's modeled after Disney, I mean, after Mickey's in the uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice yeah. Uh, sequence and so yeah it's become one of the most recognizable symbols of walt disney these days definitely yeah and just uh, the impact on you speaks to uh, the, the power of film and in different ways and different different uh, films can impact different people in different ways exactly 
So let's move on to The Philadelphia Story, 1940. It's a film by MGM that premiered December 5th, 1940. It was produced by Joseph Mankiewicz, who is probably better known as a writer and director, having won four Oscars, two for writing and two for directing. Uh, he was also the brother of screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz, who's most famous for writing the next movie on our list, Citizen Kane. It was directed by George Cukor and starring Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart. Now, we've talked about Stewart before in this podcast about the 30s and, you know, raved about how great it is. And Cary Grant was actually the top billed uh, star for this movie and was a massive star at the time, coming off recent successes like His Girl Friday. Uh, he's ranked number two on AFI's top actors list. But above all, this was a star vehicle for Katherine Hepburn. Uh, Hepburn's not only one of the greatest actors in cinema history, but also one of the most unique and fascinating individuals. She holds the record with four lead performance Oscars in 12 nominations, as well as having the largest gap between her first and last Oscars at 48 years. Mm. She's ranked number one on AFI's all-time best actresses list. But perhaps even more so than that, she was an important cultural figure. She was one of the very first famous independent women of the 20th century. She was very outspoken, refused to conform to others' ideas of how women should act. She often wore pants before it was fashionable for women to do so, for instance. Uh, she really was one of the original kind of modern women of the 20th century. And maybe in part because of that, she rubbed some people the wrong way, who saw her as arrogant and aloof, and partly due to a few movies that were bombs. Uh, after winning her first Oscar in 1933, by, 19, by the late 30s, her star had begun to fade. In fact, the Theatre Owners of America Association placed her on a list of actors and actresses who they believed were box office poison. Right. In other words, they just didn't want to screen yeah. their films. Um, but this is sort of it, much like Charlie Chaplin, this, this is where her independence totally saved her career because she just said, screw it. So she went to Broadway and began starring in a few different plays, and including this new play that was written for her, or with her in mind, called The Philadelphia Story. But even before it debuted, she had obtained the rights to it, uh, thanks to the money of her boyfriend at the time, Howard Hughes. Um, <laughs> but So the play was an enormous success, and so when studios came calling, she held the rights, so she held all the cards, and she was able to convince Louis B. Mayer of MGM to buy the rights, on the agreement that she would star in the lead role and have veto power over the director, screenwriter, and be able to choose her co-stars. So that's how the movie ended up with uh, Cukor as director, whom she had worked with on Little Women, and Cary Grant as a co-star, who she'd worked with in Bringing Up Baby. The movie went on to become the fifth most popular box office film of 1941. It was nominated for six Oscars and won two, uh, Jimmy Stewart for Best Actor, his only uh, Oscar, and Donald Ogden Stewart, no relation, for Best Screenplay. It is uh, number 51, that 44 on AFI's uh, 100 films lists, number 15 on the laughs list, number 44 on the passions list, and number five on the list of top romantic comedy films of all time. And if you remember, for listeners of the program, we had talked about the Hayes Code in, uh, in the podcast on the 30s. Well, this is a, a perfect illustration of how the Hayes Code affected stories. Right. Um, because of Hayes Code restrictions on adultery, this, it actually led to a specific genre of film of mostly comedies that were 
quote unquote remarriage comedies where <laughs> because these people couldn't go off and have affairs and and fool around with other people, these were comedies about people who had separated or divorced and then they ended up flirting and getting back together with the person they'd already been married to. And this is clearly one of the best examples of this kind of movie. So what's the story? Well, it's about a wealthy socialite named Tracy Lord, played by Hepburn, who is about to get married, remarried, and a tabloid magazine wants the scoop. So it sends along a writer, played by Stewart, and a photographer, played by Ruth Hussey, who, Hussey, Hussey, um, who received a Best Supporting Actress nomination. Um, they send them along to the wedding under the guise of being friends of Uncle Junius, and their, <laughs> their, their ruse is helped by an introduction by Tracy Lord's ex-husband, C.K. Dexter Haven. <laughs> what kind of name is that? Um, <laughs> who is helping the magazine to prevent its editor from releasing blackmail against Tracy's father. So pretty soon everybody is what's up. No one believes that Tracy should marry the guy she's about to tie the knot with. And it's clear that C.K. Dexter Haven, that's uh, Cary Grant's character, is still in love with his ex-wife. And hijinks ensue. So, <laughs> thoughts? Yeah, it's, uh, it's just before I get into my impression, it's interesting that uh, Jimmy Stewart won for Best Actor when he was second build. Yeah. And yeah, it, it is funny the the whole remarriage comedy trope because uh, yeah, I'm glad I didn't know that that was a thing before I watched this movie. Otherwise, I would have been totally spoiled in that she just wound up with Cary Grant in the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I I really liked it. It was a, it was a laugh riot. Uh, the dialogue was so quick witted. All the drunken antics and it, I th- the the whole story takes place within what maybe. 36 hours at the most something like that yeah yeah <laughs> and the fact that she, the fact that Catherine Hepburn goes through this like whole uh like emotional trial of oh who am I going to be with even though she's already engaged to be married the very next day is hilarious uh Carrie the chin grant was amazing uh he has really really good comedic timing even though well he has a lot of range uh, he can do anything from uh comedy to drama uh we'll probably do we'll probably one more Cary Grant film in the future but I'm not sure but if we don't get the chance to yeah he has the best chin in Hollywood history <laughs> um I love I mean, this is Catherine Hepburn at her most Catherine Hepburn because she's allowed to just let loose her famous transatlantic accent and cadence is on full display here. Uh, I think one of the funniest parts of the movie was the fact that Hepburn's fiance barely ever shows up. I think he's in two or three scenes. He's used as a plot device more than an actual character. Because yeah, yeah. And, and every time people are talking about him, it's just they're talking about him as if he's just this total dud. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah, he is a total wet blanket. Yeah. Every time he every time he shows up, I mean, this is about the star power between Hepburn, Stewart, and Grant, and it's really a love. Technically, it's a love quadrangle. Yeah, but it's really a love triangle between Hepburn, Stewart, and Grant because that other guy is just like there <laughs> for whatever reason. But yeah, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, this this is one of my favorite movies of of all time. I mean, it, it starts off a little rough with some 
uh, almost domestic violence and a joke about domestic violence. But yeah. but, but from that moment on, uh, it's just yeah, it's just one scene of witty banter after another, yeah. and there's just so many great lines in in this movie. I mean, it, it, here's here's a couple of examples. You hardly later. know him. And I hardly know him to know him well. And perhaps it offends my vanity to have anyone who was even remotely my wife remarry so obviously beneath her. How dare you, any of you, in this day and age, you such an idiotic... I'm talking about the difference in mind and spirit. You could marry Mac, the night watchman. I'd cheer for you. Kittridge is not for you. You bet he's for me. He's a great man and a good man. Already he's of national importance. Oh, you sound like spy magazine talking. But whatever he is, Toots, you'll have to stick. He'll give you no out as I did. I won't require one. But I mean, beyond just some of the, the humorous lines, and it's really, it's just every line is like that. Every scene, it's just one, it's just one thing after another. And the acting from all the leads is just perfect. The way they play each other off of each other, the screen chemistry from those three just explodes off off the screen. I found absolutely. And and I also found um, one of the things that makes it work so well too is George Cukor, the director. Uh, and whoever the editor was, they they had the good sense to linger on the reaction shots, oh, which yeah, yeah, which yeah. in particular Grant and Stewart were just amazing at. Like no matter mm-hmm. what was going on, the film would sometimes linger on them, and it was just watching their expressions to everything else that was going on was just some of the funniest stuff in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just watching this, uh, you know, uh, the Wizard of Oz only came out less than a year before this movie and Jimmy Stewart is already singing somewhere over the rainbow to a drunken Catherine Hepburn as if it's already a classic that everybody should know. So that just goes to show what an impact Wizard of Oz had in uh, culture. I, I had made that exact same uh, point in my notes here. Yeah, it's it's incredible how quickly Wizard of Oz had permeated the, the, yeah, the, the, the culture and just the everybody's general knowledge of things, that that could be a standard that he would be crooning along to. I saw Philadelphia Story a while back, and, you know, just looking at that scene, you think, oh, okay, well, everybody knew Somewhere Over the Rainbow, so, you, you know, just, you don't you don't think about it in its context unless you do something like we're doing where we're watching these movies in chronological order. And I thought that was just a really cool thing, how in such a short amount of time, Somewhere Over the Rainbow became such a standard that everybody knew the words already. Yeah. And that, and that, that sort of kicks off a whole sequence of, of scenes <laughs> where Stuart and Catherine Hepburn are, are both drunk. And it's it's hilarious. particularly that part where Jimmy Stewart bangs on Cary Grant's door in the middle of the night, and then they sit down. That is some of the funniest drunk acting I have ever seen in my yeah, life. It's amazing. Oh, I have the hiccups. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you mind if I take another drink? <laughs> yeah, he sets, he brings a bottle with him, sets it down on the on the table, and then a yeah. moment later he's like, "Oh, do you think I might?" As if he doesn't he doesn't remember that it's his bottle. Yeah, uh, so good. And they're just like drinking champagne out of Dixie cups. <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I I love this movie. It's just it's so much fun, and and I I will say, despite the 
you know, that 40s issues with gender roles. I actually do like the general theme of it, too, that, you know, no one is 100% perfect. You need to learn to accept and appreciate people for who they are, because if you don't, you'll always be disappointed and people make mistakes. Um, so even in a hilarious, over-the-top movie, that I thought there was a nice theme that came through it as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I, I just love the, the just the unabashed drunkenness of all these characters. Like yeah. with with so much banned by the Hayes Code, it's like yeah, fuck. You can get as drunk as you want. Like I love that scene where where Catherine Hepburn's just downing glass of champagne after glass of champagne, and they do that kind of like harp sound. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she does like five in a row. She just gets fucking wasted. <laughs> Yeah, there was great, great drunk acting by all three main characters. Yeah, and and part of part of uh, Hepburn's reason for wanting to do that kind of a role was again to sort of humanize her a little bit because right. she was seen as so aloof in Hollywood, and even though she's playing a wealthy socialite, yeah, there were scenes like that where she's kind of making a fool of herself. With the one of the very first things that happens to her in the movie is that she falls over on her ass when she gets pushed over by Cary Grant. So, and that actually was something she specifically asked for when mm-hmm. they were when they were doing takes she kept telling Cary Grant to push her push her and and so he did and then uh, later she pushes him and I guess she really laid into him at one point <laughs> and, and Cary Grant almost hurt himself but that was all part of Catherine Hepburn sort of trying to adjust her image I guess that she wanted to be seen as more down to earth and human yeah the one criticism I have is that the little girl Dinah was way too precocious for me and a bit insufferable yeah yeah she was she was but we also didn't talk about the um the photographer who played by ruth hussey who oh i don't don't know if i've seen in many other things but she was also great i mean it really was it wasn't just obviously there there were the three big names but she was sort of the fourth in the foursome that really carried the movie and I, obviously, other people thought she was great as well because she earned a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's so easy to kind of overlook her and kind of sweep her under the rug because of the star power of the three main characters. But yeah, we'd, we'd definitely be remiss if we didn't point her out because she was really, really good. All right, then, on to Citizen Kane. I'm Charles Foster King! Directed, produced by, starring, and co-written by Orson Welles, it's widely considered to be the greatest film ever made. Not bad for someone who'd never worked in the film industry before. Because Orson Welles was a playwright before this, and he was basically given the keys to the kingdom. He even had final cut privilege, which means that the producers couldn't say anything about the movie, they couldn't cut anything. This was an Orson Welles project, top to bottom, almost like a... Charlie Chaplin before him. It is number one on the AFI Top 100 Films list, both in 2008 and 1998. So it hasn't moved. It's still considered the best film. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards, but only won one for Best Writing, shared by Wells and Herman J. Mankiewicz. It's a pseudo-biopic about the fictional media mogul Charles Foster Kane, who was not so loosely based on newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. It's truly grand in scope, covering Kane's entire life from the time he's a little boy until his death as an old man. As a boy, Kane is given to a banker to be fostered and brought up with every advantage money can buy. He's a charismatic young man with the world at his fingertips. He's rich, young, idealistic, and handsome. 
He even managed to wed the niece of the U.S. president. Money and power can't buy real happiness, though, and he winds up descending deeper and deeper into self-pity, bitterness, and isolation until he dies a lonely old man in his massive, massive castle-like mansion, which he dubs Xanadu. And that's a not-so-subtle reference to the Hearst Castle, which is in California. And an amazing but, place to go visit if you ever have a chance. Well, again, once things open up and you actually can go and visit places <laughs> like that. The story is told in a non-linear fashion through the points of view of those who claim to know him best. This was a truly innovative technique at the time and has inspired almost every great filmmaker since. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'd, I'd seen it a few times before. Um, this is probably my first time really, really paying attention to trying to figure out like what... studying it? Yeah, studying it yeah. and trying to figure out what made it so great. And obviously a lot of what made it so innovative and, and incredible is the, is the structure, just how original that was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought the conceit of using a newsreel at the beginning to introduce the great newsman was, mm-hmm. was really clever. And to an audience of 1941, especially, it would have seemed, I mean, that's how they were used to getting a lot of their news. So it would have seemed a perfectly natural way to hear momentous news like that. And so not only was it clever for the story, it was also clever for the time in 1941 to introduce an audience to a character. Um, but the structure, I mean, the structure I just thought was really interesting. It's because we think it's a movie about Kane. Um, but the story structure is actually about the mystery. And mm-hmm. so the inciting incident is, you know, okay, trying to figure out what Rosebud means, for instance. And as a way of doing a story about someone's life, even though it's not exactly a straight biopic, um, it's, uh, it's really effective because most, a lot of biopics I find, they kind of get bogged down into just, okay, and then this happened in that person's life. And if they're... Episodic. Yeah. Yeah. um, But this made it a really structured story, and I just thought that was a great way to do that story. And so for me, watching it, and again, with an eye on studying it, it it was all about the structure, and and yeah, it was really well done. Yeah, this is the second time I've seen it. I think the first time was about six or seven years ago before I went to my first year of film school in New York. And I quite frankly thought it was a little boring. Maybe it cut, maybe it was cause I was a little drunk at the time and I, I couldn't follow it as much, but uh, yeah, watching it this time with an eye for actually studying the filmmaking aspect of it. Uh, it was incredibly impressive. Um, the makeup especially blew me away. I mean, to turn Orson Welles from a young, virile, charismatic man to a decrepit, bald, fat, bitter old man was just almost flawlessly done. And the funny thing is, it's not far off from where the real the real Orson Welles winds, winds up. Because, <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> because uh, just uh, by... Uh, serendipity I watched the Muppet movie last weekend on Disney Plus and he plays the the like the fat cat big time producer in, in the Muppet movie and that's in his later years and yeah he except for he had he had a good head of hair and he was fatter than what he thought he was going to be but other than that, <laughs> he, like, that, that yeah that looked like Orson Welles in Citizen Kane 
<laughs> Although Orson Welles' career went from Citizen Kane to his last uh, official credit was uh, the voice of Megatron, I believe, right, in right. Uh, Transformers, <laughs> the movie, the cartoon. Yeah. So uh, a little bit of a fall from grace. but He no, does the, have a hell of a voice, though. Oh, he really does. Yeah, There's a reason why he was so successful in radio. But yeah, that, that makeup for sort of aging makeup, it's as good, you know, and this was 1941, it's as good as a lot of movies you see today in terms of the aging it's uh, right. it, it was whoever did the makeup on that was was incredible, and then also just uh, in terms of the actual the filmmaking the the use I mean there's going to be a lot of this that we talk about in the forties um, because a lot of these are still black and white movies but the use of light and shadow mm-hmm. um, just very specific to tailor to the tone of each scene was just really uh, insightful in terms of what they were filming and the way they were filming it being uh, really uh, cohesive. And the sound was amazing too. Like I said, um, Orson Welles was just a playwright before RKO basically gave him the keys to the kingdom. (laughs) And what really comes to mind is the scene where he's in Xanadu with his second wife and she's doing that jigsaw puzzle and the echoing of the uh, their voices just shows how distant they are. And uh, I'll show you, I'll let you listen to a little clip of that. What are you doing? Oh, one thing I never can understand, Susan. How do you know you haven't done it before? Makes a whole lot more sense than collecting statues. You may be right. I sometimes wonder. But you get into the habit? It's not a habit. I do it because I like it. I thought we might have a picnic tomorrow, Susan. Huh? I thought we might have a picnic tomorrow. Invite everybody to spend the night at the Everglades. Fight everybody. Order everybody a meet and make them sleep in tents. Who wants to sleep in tents when they got a nice room of their own, with their own bath, where they know where everything is? thought we might have a picnic tomorrow, Susan. But yeah, you can just hear when he's like, uh, well, I think we'll have a picnic tomorrow and it just echoes throughout this like vast, vast empty space. And that uh, that poor second wife of his just, I mean, she's so ditzy. I mean, she, yeah. I mean, he just like basically just picks her out of the gutter and tries to make her into this uh, international sensation, which just goes to show how arrogant he is to say you know, I have all the money in the world. I can make my own reality. And it's 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 really a tragedy at the end. Yeah, it is. And the second wife character is um, apparently a big part of why William Randolph Hearst hated this movie so much because <laughs> he thought that was uh, an indictment of his second wife, Marion Davies, who had been an actress and he did a lot to try to support her career. Um Orson Welles says that that wasn't the case at all, that he had a lot of respect for Marion Davies, and it, she wasn't supposed, and she wasn't at all, the, the second wife character wasn't at all like Marion Davies, but that definitely got uh, Hearst's <laughs> ire, and so he did everything he could to try to stop the productions and prevent the movie from even filming or, or being shown anywhere, but... Obviously, uh, to no avail, because it's now listed as one of the greatest of all time. 
And the thing is, I'm no opera expert, but I didn't think she was that bad. Nah, she wasn't great. There, okay. there, there were a couple of notes where she was uh, a little pitchy, I guess. But I mean, that's, yeah, but that's I mean, I'm no opera like, expert either. But that's when you like go out. Of, that's what, that's when she went out of her way to be bad as like an, as an actress when uh, when she was in the um, when she was being taught by that Italian guy. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. No, 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 pitch, 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 pitch. Yeah. But uh, when she was on the stage, I was like, okay, yeah, I could. This could pass for opera for me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. But wait, like, wait. Cause, but I mean, they could have gone like way overboard and make her just like whoa, 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 or something like that. True, but, yeah. I, I think it's more tragic that she was like almost there, but she was just like a little bit off at parts, which just made her an okay singer rather than a great singer. Yeah, I agree, and, and it also made it a little more realistic. I think exactly, yeah. Well, one one other, I mean, there's so many things that could talk about about the production of, of Citizen Kane. One interesting thing I, I found out when I was looking into this a little more is that um, Wells had the, the whole cast do like massive rehearsals before the scenes. Um, something that I guess was sort of another innovation. Most film productions hadn't really done that before this point. Plus, that's um, a that's a that's goes back to him being a playwright because once you're yeah. live you're on so yeah that that makes sense yeah. but but it obviously it obviously worked this was kind of an evolution of german expressionism as well with the with the camera angles and the we talked about dr caligari and nosferatu back in our 20s podcast and you could really see that this was the uh, logical evolution from that it wasn't quite film noir but it had elements of that, which we'll get into later when we start talking about actual film noir. Film noir. Yeah, and, and Wells obviously sort of liberally stole from everybody. Um, he, which all great directors do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tarantino would be the first person to yeah. tell you that. Yeah. Um, but Wells had, you know, not only was this his first movie, he, he had not really even stepped foot on a, on a film production stage before this. And so for him to go and direct this, apparently what he did do, though, is he basically studied for a full year and a half, just went around and talked to directors and tried to, and tried to learn as much as he possibly could, watching some movies over and over and over and over again to try to learn techniques. And, uh, yeah, obviously it, it showed because he, he learned how to do some things pretty well. Yeah, and I think the whole Rosebud thing is one of the greatest MacGuffins in movie history because it drives the entire plot, but in the end it's something so simple that like when when you're looking at like the last words of a great man, you think it's gonna be something, you know, really, really meaningful and something that everybody can identify with, but in the end he was left alone. He died alone. And he was just remembering his happy, happiest time, his most uncynical time, when he was just riding his sleigh as a little kid before all this pressure was put on him. Yeah, I mean, Rosebud was the sled. Oh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but really, yeah, it was more than that. It could have been anything. It was, it was, all it was was just a reflection of a happier time in his childhood. Um, maybe a little bit of an ignorance is bliss kind of theme there. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. So, last point, do you think this is the greatest movie of all time? I don't think so. Um, 
Yeah, it probably, it, if I had to make a list, I'm not sure if it would be top three for me. Uh, but it's it's definitely an incredible movie, and again, studying it now, I can recognize what people see as as, as so great about it. But no, it, it wouldn't be number one on my list. I would have to agree, but you know, art is subjective, completely yeah, subjective. I mean, I have a list of favorite movies that don't line up at all with like the AFI top one hundred. But I can see why this is number one, just because of how innovative and influential it's been. I don't think it's the greatest movie ever made, but I do think it was a watershed moment in filmmaking, and it deserves the praise that it gets, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree completely. So let's move on then to another movie that these days has almost near universal acclaim, and that is 1942's Casablanca. This was a Warner Brothers movie that premiered November 26th, 1942. It was produced by Hal B. Wallace, a name we first heard in this series for the 1931 movie Little Caesar, uh, one of his very first films. But by this time, he was well-established as one of the most successful producers in Hollywood. It was directed by Michael Curtis and written by Julius Epstein, Philip Epstein, and uh, Howard Koch. It was based on an unproduced stage play by the name of Everybody Comes to Rick's. And starring Humphrey Bogart, Ingrid Bergman, Paul Renheed, Julie Wilson, Peter Laurie, and of course the great Claude Rains, who we talked about <laughs> in our, our podcast on the 30s. Um, despite being recognized now as one of the greatest screenplays ever, the script by the Epstein twins, um, Howard Koch was brought on in the middle, actually, when Epstein's, when they left to work on another movie for a month. And there are still some debates about just how much of his work was used. But the, the screenplay wasn't even finished before they started filming. And for that reason, the movie was actually filmed in sequence, something that's quite unusual for almost any production. Um, in fact, the writers weren't even sure how they were going to end the story. Mm. And here's again where the Hayes Code showed its influence. Um, because uh, Ingrid Bergman, Bergman's character of Ilsa couldn't run off with somebody who wasn't her husband, per Hayes Code rules, the writers found a brilliant way to bring closure to the love triangle. The story goes that the twins were driving around Los Angeles during filming and stopped at a red light and suddenly they just turned to each other in the car and at the same time shouted, round up the usual suspects. <laughs> and apparently that's how they both, in, in the exact same time, came up with the idea of, of how to end the movie. Um, the film's release was actually timed to coincide with world events in real time as it was released just shortly after the Allied invasion of North Africa and around the time of the Casablanca conference between Churchill and Roosevelt despite the filmmakers originally not realizing that they were making something so special. The film was very well received and then became even more highly recognized at the next year's Academy Awards. It was nominated for eight Oscars and won three of the most important for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. It is listed on numerous AFI Top 100 lists, including number two and then number three on the Top 100 Movies lists. Number 37 on the thrills list. Number one on the passions list of greatest love stories. Number 32 on the cheers list. The character of Rick is listed as the fourth best hero. 
and the song, As Time Goes By, is ranked as the number two song in film. Additionally, it has six quotes on the 100 movie quotes list, and no other movie has more than three. So mm. just to point out how quotable of a movie that is. Uh, interestingly enough, the top-ranked quote, here's looking at you, kid, at number five, wasn't originally in the script. It was apparently something that Bogart said to Bergman when he was teaching her how to play poker on set between takes. Um, and again, sort of like uh, when you were talking about Mirror Mirror in the um, oh, in yeah, the yeah. 30s segment the about, effect, yeah, yeah. Uh, about uh, Snow White. Play it again, Sam. That famous line was never actually heard in the in the movie. It was mm-hmm. it was play it, Sam, or play the song again. Like it, but never play it again, Sam. So what's the story? Uh, an American named Rick Blaine owns the most popular club in Casablanca, a common transit point for people trying to flee war-torn Europe. Rick comes into possession of letters of transit, again a great MacGuffin in this movie, <laughs> that will allow anyone to leave for America. But his attempts to stay out of trouble are complicated when his ex-lover, Elsa Lund, walks into the club one night with her husband, a hero of the resistance against the Nazis, and they're desperate for a way to escape the Germans. Despite Ilsa having broken his heart when she left him without warning years ago in Paris, Rick has to decide whether to help the couple or if he should use the leverage he has to try to get her back. Zach, dig in on this for me. This is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, I think I've seen it five or six times, and it's one of those that, for me at least, it gets better with every rewatch because... um, Especially as I, you know, learn more about world history and, you know, you get a better sense of the context of the, and the scope of the, of the entire story about how much this little, which se- this seemingly little, you know, love triangle between the three main characters actually has wide worldwide reaching effects and it is endlessly quotable that's why it has six on the afi top 100 uh bogey is my man like he's one of the best of all time and for good reason ingrid bergman is just stellar she's absolutely stunning and she you know she holds her own with the best of them and then yeah claude rains like he <laughs> The run he had from around 1937 to here and beyond is just un- unheard of. Since yeah, de- definitely one of the most underrated actors in, in Hollywood history. I mean, you never really hear about him talked as one of the all-time greats, I guess because he he wasn't the lead in many movies, but man, was he good. It's because he, he immerses himself in characters. It's not like, you know, because a lot of people don't even remember the name Rick Blaine. But because it's just Humphrey Bogart, you know, he's larger than life. But I mean, then Claude Rains, you know, he's just this weaselly, like totally corrupt, admittedly corrupt, <laughs> just totally unscrupulous uh, officer. And <laughs> I mean, with despite the star power of Bogey, uh, Claude Rains almost damn near steals the show here. Oh, I agree. And, and he completely show what he can do comedy as well. I mean, 
all the there, there's just almost too many good lines in this dimension. I mm-hmm. mean, there were six on the AFI list, but it, it, it could have been a hundred more. Just every line in this, every line of dialogue in this film is a gem. And one of my favorites is is this little hilarious bit with Claude Rains right here. Everybody is to leave here immediately. This cafe is closed until further notice. Clear the room at once. I'm shocked, shocked to find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. So just, just hilarious showing how, how unscrupulous he is, but how, you know, he just don't give a fuck. I mean, he's just happy. He's just very confident in, in who he is, that he's a corrupt official. There's another part where even where there's a joke about another guy saying, you know, I, I run all the illegal gambling in this city. This is another character. And um, and uh, so, you know, I, I have a reputation to uphold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just lines like that are just scattered throughout this movie um, yeah you, for, you kind of forget how funny this movie is oh yeah yeah it's great and just um here's another one of my favorites inv- involving humphrey bogart again bogart not necessarily always known for his humor but uh, here's a great one from him i've often speculated on why you don't return to america did you abscond with the church funds did you run off with the senator's wife i like to think that you killed a man it's the romantic in me it's a combination of all three and what in heaven's name brought you to casablanca my health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. <laughs> just, just really, really clever stuff. Um, one thing I loved about this, I mean, my, my love for this movie knows no bounds. There's just so much <laughs> to, to love about it. But uh, in addition to the, just the incredible dialogue, just how it was shot, everything else, uh, I love how they introduced Rick before we even see him. Yeah, like that's we, how you do a good character intro. We already know so much about him before right. he even speaks, before even, you know, before we even see his face on screen. We've already heard about Rick. We know what kind of man he is. We've heard people talking about him. We know how important he is. It's, oh, it's such a great, it's one of the greatest character introductions of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think a lot of the best character intros of all time are the ones where we hear about the character for a good like five ten minutes before we actually meet the character, so we already know him before we see him. A lot of um, uh, I don't want to use the word lazy, but a lot of the stereotypical like uh, a lot of a lot of writers want their main character in every scene, and I think that's a pitfall that a lot of people fall into. But the less we see of him, the more mysterious he is, and that is perfect for this movie because Rick is so kind of morally ambiguous and we don't know what actual decision he's going to make until the final scene. And yeah, yeah, it was a uh, really suspenseful, even, even watching it, knowing how it ends, it's, it's still suspenseful. Like, cause I mean, everybody's rooting for Rick and Elsa to wind up together and you know, he makes the honorable decision in the end. Yeah, and, and um, I mean, not only is, is there all that, the, the funny, the humor, the, the scene with um, the competing music when Rick sort of with a nod okays the playing of La Marseillaise, that's, I mean, that's a genuinely moving scene for me. It I mean, gave me goosebumps this time. That's like one of the few notes, I know this movie so well, but that's one of the few notes I made this time because this time that that scene really, really hit me because it was such like a subtle nod 
and that's Rick kind of turning the corner there. Yeah, yeah, and and one little little tiny thing that makes that scene too is this sort of side bit character of this woman who's who's basically I mean she's trying to do anything not to uh, denigrate the character, but she's trying to do anything she can to survive, and she's right. kind of she's kind of whoring herself out to anybody who will who will help her out, and mm-hmm. so she goes from Rick to Claude Rains' character to the uh, to to some of the Nazis, um, but when that when the Marseillaise starts playing, she's the one standing up, singing it most proudly with almost a tear rolling mm, down her. Mm-hmm. That just makes that scene, puts that scene over the top. Just an incredible detail. And um, just a side note, since we've been doing the entire evolu- evolution of film, I guess it's not even really a side note. It's actually a, a genuine note. Um, we're finally getting to see... African-Americans play nuanced characters in a sense, uh, like real human beings instead of just stereotypes. I mean, he is a bit of a stereotype because he's the happy, happy go lucky, you know, piano playing quote unquote Negro. But, um, yeah, I mean, Sam, Sam's great here. Yeah, he really is. Actually interesting note on Dooley, Dooley Wilson too. Um, he, um, he was a musician that they that they found playing in clubs, but he actually wasn't a piano player. He was a drummer, oh, and, okay. and and singer. But he had to he had to fake all the piano playing parts <laughs> because he actually didn't play piano. That wasn't his instrument. He was he did a, it pretty damn he, well. Yeah, he was a singer and drummer. <laughs> but yeah, when uh, when 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 Rick's in his darkest moment uh, after he sees Elsa for the first time in years, uh, you know, he, he Sam's right there to pick him up. And he, he does it does kind of still have the 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 master servant dynamic to it, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've said this before, but you know, we're taking baby steps, and yeah. it's still far ahead of what society was at the time. So that was refreshing to see in context of uh, the retrospective that we're doing with this century series. Exactly, and and also, I mean, just like how Rick's introduction was through other characters. Um, when Ilsa first, first walks into the bar, we learn everything we need to know about her and how important her character is, all based upon Sam's reaction. Right. It's, it's all his reaction, his face. And so, again, baby steps, but they placed such an important character introduction really solely on his character to, mm-hmm. to, to introduce her character. Yeah, I mean, just like Citizen Kane, um, we could go on and on about this one, but in the interest of saving your precious time let's move on to double indemnity unless you had any last notes nope let's move on all right all right double indemnity 1944 directed by the fantastic and prodigious billy wilder co-written by wilder and raymond chandler based on a 1943 novella of the same name by james m kane it stars fred mcmurray Barbara Stanwyck, and Edward G. Robinson, who you'll remember from Little Caesar from the last podcast. It's ranked number 29th on the AFI list of nine spots from its number 38 ranking on the 2008 list. It's our first example of a genre that's called film noir. While the word noir is just the French word for black, the genre is characterized by having elements of crime with messages of cynicism, fatalism, and moral ambiguity. That's the Webster's dictionary definition of it, at least. A lot of times there's a hard-boiled detective, a femme fatale, a lot of shadows, double entendres, 
slang, fast-paced dialogue, and Venetian blinds. Double Indemnity tells the tale of an insurance salesman played by McMurray who falls madly in lust with Barbara Sandwick, who plays a seductress of the highest order. She's a bored housewife who, for no real justifiable reason, wants her husband dead so she can collect on the life insurance policy. Together, the two hatch a scheme to kill the husband, split the dough, skip town, and live happily ever after. They want to make the death look like an accident, not only to exonerate themselves, but to collect on a policy of double indemnity, which means the insurance policy pays double the life insurance if the death is ruled an accident. While they succeed in killing the husband, it all goes to shit, and the two ill-fated lovers shoot each other. Stanwake dies instantly, but McMurray, who is bleeding out from the wound, clears his conscience and confesses the whole thing to his friend and boss, played by Edward G. Robinson. What did you think of it? I I enjoyed it. It's I think it's my second time seeing it. Um, I will say a lot of it came across as kind of cheesy, especially you know the narration and how he talks about ah, the dame walks in, and I guess that's just because. We've seen that and heard that so many times now, but this was really the first movie to do that kind of thing. So it really was a trendsetter in that way. So again, going back in the series and watching movies, trying to put myself in the position of somebody watching this movie in 1944, that would have been very original. Uh, But to our 2020 ears, it, it came across as a little cheesy for me. But there were there were other parts of this movie that were that were great, and it's our first time watching a Billy Wilder movie in this series, and, and mm-hmm. I imagine it won't be the last. Um, and just on top of everything else that's brilliant about the man as a writer and director, how incredible is it that one of the one of the greatest screenwriters of all time is a guy for whom English was not even his first language? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm always impressed by people like that that he can come up with such incredibly uh, witty dialogue and just well-written scripts and all that in his second language. Um, I will say on, on the plus side, uh, you know, aside from the cheesy aspect, the, the whole script, the, the plot and the dialogue, it's all really tight. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it's really just one thing next to the other. I mean, the main weakness, I guess, is that I didn't necessarily buy the, love story, lust story, I guess, to begin with. It's only after a couple of meetings that, oh, you know, oh, we're in love and get ready to go kill somebody over it. Well, not even a couple. Like, he he is head over heels the first time he sees that fucking anklet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> like, it takes a while for her to come around, but for him, he is, like, he's willing to die for her the first minute he sees her legs. Yeah. So yeah, so that that was that was a bit of a weakness for me, but uh, I, I can definitely see why this would have been so influential. Um, but it probably wasn't one of my favorites from this decade. Okay, see, I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that. We were classmates together in film school, and I wrote a, a, a TV pilot parody of noir films. And I, I remember this, that it was great. Yeah, this is the first, like. Uh, it's not the first noir, but oh my God, does it set the precedent for everything that comes after it. 
just the the dialogue back and forth uh, between Freddie McMurray and Barbara Sandwick, the, the first time they meet, it's just so much double entendre, and that's another reason why the Hayes Code might have been uh, accidentally beneficial to the film industry because they couldn't say out loud what they were actually thinking. But I'm just gonna play a, a clip from their initial conversation. My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. Eight thirty tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. Will you be here too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. But yeah, the way they just go back and forth like that is so witty. And like you said, for not being Billy Wilder's first language, the, the slang that he uses, I mean, this seems like such a, a, you know, a 1940s American movie because there's just so much that, like, I had to look up words as I was watching the movie because I wasn't sure what uh, this particular slang words actually meant at the time. But the, the way he uses baby and dame and everything, I mean, this is the quintessential noir film, which is one of the reasons why we picked it. And uh, I enjoyed it from beginning to end. I do agree that in, in 2020, with uh, hindsight, hindsight being 2020 as well, uh, <laughs> it does seem a little cheesy, but if you just uh, give yourself a little bit of suspension of reality and kind of put yourself in the the shoes of somebody watching this in 1944. This was really, really innovative. Yeah, there, there was one, one part I loved about it um, as sort of in sort of an ironic way was there just a total sign of how the times have changed. There's that one part where his voiceover, he, he's, he's showing up, he talks about, well, I stopped at a drive-in for a bottle of beer and you can see him sitting there at the drive-in in his car just <laughs> chugging back beer. <laughs> times have changed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought the the plot was great. It had all the tropes that you look for in noir, except for the hard boiled detective. Which, yeah, uh, but it, in a, in a weird sort of way, that was almost played by Edward G. Robinson's um, insurance agent uh, role or, or claims um, claims agent, whatever they call them. Yeah. Um, that that was kind of his role in this movie. It wasn't a detective, but it was the investigator who's trying to find out the truth. Yeah, he's the one that's on their tail the whole time because the cops never get involved until the very last scene where you hear the ambulances coming. But yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting to see the uh, the evolution of Edward G. Robinson because when we talked about him in Little, Little Caesar, which I think came out in 1933? 1931. Uh, 31. Oh, shit. Okay, yeah. So uh, 12 years before this. Yeah, to see him go from being the quintessential gangster to this morally upstanding insurance adjuster, it was it was kind of cool to see that, you know, he had a he carved out a nice career for himself, even though he's not lauded as one of the, you know, Hollywood greats. 
No, but but definitely at the time. I mean, 30s and 40s, he was he was pretty big. He was a pretty big deal. Right. So thanks for joining us on this episode of the Unsolicited Film Reviews podcast. We'll see you again in about a week for part two of the podcast on the 40s. You can always catch us at unsolicitedfilmreviews.com. You can follow us on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. You can follow me personally at Zach T. Miller on Instagram. And you can follow me at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E. And yeah, we'll hope you enjoy your quarantine and uh, hope you all stay alive, stay safe. And we will come back for part two of the Unsolicited Film Reviews podcast, Century Series 1940. You have been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, with original music by Martin Cook and original artwork by Dan Ong. Sponsored by No One. And we'll see you next time.